everybody. I wanted to welcome you to the sixth episode of School Psych Podcast. My name is Rachel and I'm an NCSP currently working in the state of Texas. Anna? Hi, I'm Anna. I'm a school psychologist working in New York State. I'm Rebecca. Hi, I'm Rebecca and I am a school psychologist working in Connecticut. You can participate in a few different ways. Rebecca's our tech person. <laughs> oh my gosh, I always forget that. This is the most yeah. important part. We really want you guys to participate. Um, there's a, there's several different ways to participate. On our Facebook pages, uh, we have a School Psych podcast page. I did post a, um, a link at the top of the School Psych podcast page on Facebook. Please feel free to just comment there underneath. Um, share your ideas, your questions, your experiences. We want to hear from you guys. Also, on my Facebook page, which is School Psych to Your School Psychologist, please feel free to comment there. Also, you can um, use the hashtag PsychedPodcast. You can do that on Twitter as well, or um, you can comment right on the on, on either of the Facebook pages. We want, to, we want to hear from you, so please participate. If you don't know how to participate, find a place to comment and ask, and I will, I'll mention it again. <laughs> we had a little poll going on Facebook. Thank you guys for participating. We had um, almost 200 people participate, which was awesome. Um, and we wanted to know, you know, how do you identify students with learning disabilities? Learning disabilities are everywhere and across the state. We're across the country. We're evaluating students and state by state and you know district by district. This looks different and it's interpreted differently. And there's the you know IDEA law and then there's your state law and how you do it within your district. So it's really interesting. So um, the number one response on our poll was the discrepancy method, which was really interesting. 57 votes. Um, number two was RTI. Um, number three was profiling strengths and weaknesses, so like the PSW method, which we're going to talk about today. And also, someone added another option, which was patterns of student strengths and weaknesses with RTIs. So RTI is really, if you combine those two together, kind of the top runner. Um, but you know, you're still doing some work in evaluating students and looking at their strengths and weaknesses. And then um, cross-battery assessment had 17 votes, which I thought was interesting. And other was three votes. So people are also being creative and and doing different things, which brings us to our guests, Rachel, we'll introduce. All right, so um, tonight we've got uh, Dr. McGill, who um, I saw first during a presentation at TASC, the Texas Association of Psychologists. And I'm new to Texas this year, and um, I've noticed that Texas is very big into um, PSW, specifically into cross-battery assessment. And coming from a different state, I, I kind of had to learn a lot and figure out what this was all about. I had a kind of a brief introduction to it in grad school, but um, nothing that really truly prepared me. So I made it a point to attend his presentation, and I learned a lot from it, um, and just thought that he had a really um, interesting take on it. So he's going to talk a little bit about his research, um, a little bit about his background and whatnot um, with us. So I'm going to bring him into our Hangout. So everybody, welcome him. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Hi. Do you want to start off by telling us a little bit about your background and what you do as far as research and where you've been and all the fun stuff? Sure. Um, I'm new to Texas as well this year. I'm an assistant professor at uh, in the school psych program at Texas Women's University. That's just north of Dallas. And prior to that, I was a full-time school psychologist in Southern California for um, approximately five years or so. And uh, taught in the training program at Chapman University, for those that are familiar out there. So. Um, 
California is a state, and so my practice experience as far as identifying SLD was largely uh, based on the discrepancy model. California has been using the discrepancy model pretty religiously since since it was adopted um, nationwide. There's a couple of schools that have done RTI, but that's really isolated in California. So moving out to Texas, it's like I share with Rachel, uh, sort of trying to get an understanding of what people are doing. It seems like it's more like the Wild West. People can kind of do whatever they want. So that's been an interesting change. But um, my research interests largely focus on um, looking at the validity, both the predictive validity and the structural validity of cognitive measures, which ties into PSW because if the measures that we use to diagnose kids with learning disabilities aren't valid, then we have some issues with that model because it really makes a lot of assumptions about what those those measures are actually measuring. And so that's what I'm interested in and spent the last really three to four years researching. Very cool. I wanted to ask you too, um, before you kind of gotten into stuff, um, how, how uh, popular is this across the country now, this, um, you're going to talk a little bit about the PSW which, you know, cross battery would be kind of one of those models. How popular is that? Because I, I hadn't heard about it too much prior to coming to Texas. Is this something that's up and coming, that states are adopting? Um, how, how does this look kind of across the country? Well, it was interesting. We, um, uh, based on that presentation, we were in the working stages of a paper, and we actually have submitted that for review. So as a part of sort of revising that, we actually had to look at um, kind of how prevalent this model is or, or what states are doing with respect to adopting PSW. And, and I would say probably five years ago there weren't very many states that were doing anything with it. It was really more of an academic model. People were saying, hey, let's do this in the literature, but it really hadn't been adopted yet. And, and within the last five to seven years, I mean, we've really seen to now you have seven to nine states that actually allow for PSW within their procedural regulations. And um, right now we're currently in the stages of having IDEA reauthorized again. So there's a big push, um, not only in the school site community, but within the academic community. And there's a big lobbying effort to really get PSW um, codified within the federal regulations so that it, it can stand alone with RTI or discrepancy or whatever they do with that, we won't know. But um, there's a lot of people that want to see it really overtake the discrepancy model as the cognitive model as, an, as a sort of... Um, component or competitor with RTI. All right, very interesting. I, I definitely have some more questions, but I'm going to let you talk a little bit about your research and maybe you'll kind of uh, answer them as, as we go. And anyone okay. jump in. <laughs> Okay, so um, if you just want me to go ahead and, and kind of give you an overview of my issues with PSW. So, um, just in general, PSW, there's different models that are out there that have been proposed. But basically, they all share sort of the core, same core assumptions. And so as far as a school psychologist going to diagnose a kid with a learning disability, if you're using a PSW model, as opposed to just sort of if you have, I'm assuming most people on here have experience or understand conceptually what the discrepancy model is, but in PSW, you're really not concerned as much with the general cognitive score that you get from a cognitive measure. You're really going to be looking at the kid's profile of cognitive and academic strengths and weaknesses. And so basically, you're going to give a battery of cognitive achievement measures, and then you're going to look at the profile of scores that you get, and then based on the different models, really where they differ is how you determine whether or not a score is a significant weakness or not. Um, their core assumptions are all the same, and that is that essentially, in order to be SLD, you have to present with at least one cognitive weakness, um, and that cognitive weakness has to be linked in some logical way to an observed achievement weakness. 
and then there has to be the presence of some kind of intact cognitive achievement performance. So a pattern of average or low average scores and all the other abilities that aren't linked to those weaknesses. Um, and like I said, the models really differ with respect to how they, they, they determine what a cognitive weakness is, whether they use statistical procedures or they utilize sort of a priori thresholds. Um, but the issue with that is, is you're really forced to interpret your cognitive tests at what is called the first order level. So the broad factor level, the index level, you're not looking at the full scale score. And so a core assumption of that is, is that those measures are actually measuring the actual cognitive ability that, that is hypothesized to be measured by that measure. So if I'm giving a visual processing measure, I'm interpreting that as predominantly measuring visual processing and nothing else. And so what my research and, and my colleagues' research has really shown, you know, we've looked at not only the structural validity of these measures, but the predictive validity. And there's a core, there's a core problem with that assumption, and that is that these measures not only are saturated with general factor variants, so variants that's, that's measuring general intelligence, but they also in some cases are measuring multiple broad cognitive abilities, which is problematic. And so as a practitioner, when you're sitting there looking at those scores, and you've got this multidimensionality problem, you presently we don't have a way when we're sitting there with these scores and interpreting them at the individual level to disentangle all this stuff. And so what that leads to is overinterpretation of measures and falsely attributing performance to cognitive variables that, that are um, not being interpreted by the practitioner. So you may say that that kid, say, gets a score of 85 on a visual processing measure. When you interpret that in practice, you're making assumptions that all of that 85 is visual processing, when in reality the vast majority of it is G, general intelligence, and, and a little bit of it is actually the thing that we're interested in. And this is not a problem that's isolated to one or two tests. This is a problem with almost all of our contemporary measures. And so what my research does is, with that fact in mind, is taking out the stuff that we're not interested in these measures, so all that G variance, and then looking at with what's left over, how much of that predicts achievement? And, and what are the significant effects there? And what, and what my research, I've done the research on the WJ series, I've done research on the KBC2. And when you take out that general factor variance, um, the, what's left over, so what is attributable to the actual thing that we're interested in, doesn't predict much significant achievement variance at all. And so that's a, that's a, core, that's a core problem that, that we have to address if you're going to adopt a PSW method. I think that kind of sounds like a core problem for us, no matter what, I mean, we all assume that our measures are valid and accurate and are measuring what we're told to measure. So I, I'm just picturing a lot of people's kind of brain exploding after hearing something like that, that everything that we learned in grad school and all the interpretations that we do, that maybe they're not as, maybe our measures aren't basically as, as accurate as we think they are. Is that what? Yeah, well, like I'll just keep it not even in terms of trying to figure out like all these sources of variance and that kind of stuff because that's kind of a complex um, thing to kind of wrap your head around. But just taking it from the perspective of just basic construct validity. So if I'm giving the KABC2, which is hypothesizes to measure five different CHC-related abilities and then you have a full-scale score. So a basic assumption if I'm using that measure and I'm interpreting all those scores is is that it actually measures five separate CHC-related abilities. Well, when we do factor analysis on these measures and we use more conservative um, procedures for extracting factors, 
um, what we find is, is that almost all of our tests do not even come close to measuring the factors that they say that they measure you know, from the test publisher. And that's a huge problem. And so what essentially you have is you have the test publisher saying, hey, our tests measure eight factors or five factors or six factors or whatever. It seems to get more, look bigger and bigger as time goes on. And when folks look at this independently in the research, we're only finding that it measures two factors or three factors. And so a lot of those factors, if you're interpreting them in, in practice, aren't real. They're just made up. And so that's a huge problem. And what I suspect is just to sort of understand what, you know, how does this impact practice? For all of you out there that have been using these measures and trying to interpret them according to what the test publisher says or the essentials book says or whatever interpretive resource you utilize, if you're finding that the stuff just isn't adding up or the scores aren't aligning in the way that you were taught, that's why. And I suspect that I'm not alone out there. I'm, I encountered that reality um, when I went into practice within my first year. And when I talk to people out there when I'm doing workshops and stuff, I find that they're, they're sharing those same sorts of concerns. And that's the reason why, is, is those factors may not even be real. And so it makes it very difficult as a practitioner to, to utilize those in practice to diagnose kids with learning disabilities um, with any kind of reliability if, if you're getting factors that may, in fact, not even be real factors. Um, what's the difference though, between the research? Because we know that the testing companies put in a lot of research um, into their tests and whatnot. So what is the difference between their research, which seems to say that um, you know they've got all these different Gs going on, and, and they're valid measures, and they're accurate, and, and your research that's saying that maybe not so much? What, why is there a difference? Well, um, it's a good question, and what we've found over the course of the last couple of decades has been, for instance, tests are largely, you know, sort of, they base their validity when we start talking about construct validity on factor analysis. And I won't go into, like, what factor analysis is and all that kind of stuff, but there's different factor analytic methods. And so what you've really seen over the last two decades has been a gradual shift when it comes to test development and there's really two predominant methods. There's exploratory factor analysis and there's confirmatory factor analysis. And EFA, exploratory, is really very restricted. Um, when I do an EFA, I basically throw all the data in the machine and it really tells me kind of what, how many factors I can extract. I really can't do anything else other than that. So I can't gin up the data. Um, there's some, you know, sorts of things I can do to maybe use different extraction procedures, but it's basically going to tell me what I'm working with. CFA, on the other hand, is thought to be more powerful, it's more powerful because you specify the measurement model beforehand. And then it'll tell you how well that model fits the data. And what's, what's interesting about what you can do with CFA is, is you can make all kinds of modifications to the model and specify all kinds of things in your measurement model in order to get a better fit. So it allows you a lot of freedom to be able to play with that measurement model. And what we've seen over the last two decades is test developers really just exclusively utilize CFA to develop tests. And really, I mean, for instance, the WISC-5, I just reviewed it for a book chapter that's being published um, um, probably next year. They didn't use EFA at all. First time the WISC has not reported any EFA procedures at all. And they utilize CFA to, to really develop the WISC-5. And there's some significant questions. The reason why this book was commissioned is to get a bunch of researchers together, really just to argue it out about what the WISC-5 measures, because there's going to be a tremendous debate within the literature about that. And it has to do with how they specified their model in their CFA measurement model. And they really did a lot of playing around with that. Wow. I have a question, and, and this might be, as Rachel's, Rachel mentioned, I'm one of the people who's 
heads are exploding right now. This is a, um, I don't do this in a private school, but I'm wondering beyond the um, the the different ways that tests me measure that that we can measure test validity. Are there different um, definitions that people are using for specific learning disabilities? Because I know you know the federal law has one. The um, Different learning disability associations have their definitions that are a little bit different. Um, private schools, you know, we go, I think, mostly by the DSM, the DSM-5, because we are using private evaluators to determine um, learning disability for, for our students in private schools. So is there, are we in agreement on the definition of specific learning disabilities? Uh, no, and that's that's a huge problem, and that's been a problem for really 30 years. Um, for instance, the DSM, uh, the new DSM that came out last year, I mean, it literally is. If you have basically low achievement, you can be diagnosed with a specific learning disability, so it's really broad-ended. Um, right now, if you look strictly at the federal law, you really only have RTI and you have the discrepancy model. But like I said, there's, there's some debate. Um, as to whether there's some, the way some of the regulations are written, whether you can do a PSW model, and that's where this comes from. Where, like I said before, is as IDA gets reauthorized, the PSW proponents want to make that language stronger so it actually is clearly specified within the law that this is a standalone model. But um, the issue that you raise is really an important one, and that is regardless of what's written in the regulations, what do people actually do out there? And this is a problem that uh, Frank Gresham and some colleagues, when he was at UCR, he's now at LSU now, um, they did a series of studies in the 80s and the 90s kind of looking at going into districts, local educational agencies, and looking at, of the folks that were diagnosed SLD, looking at their assessment reports and seeing if they actually met state-specified criteria for that diagnosis. And what they found across multiple decades, across multiple local educational agencies, it really didn't matter, this was replicated, was approximately something like 25% of the kids that were identified as SLD did not meet criteria based on their assessment data. Mm -hmm. And so this is a point that Mark Shen, a famous researcher, has kind of raised over and over again and why he supports RTI. And he basically says this, look, all these folks kind of talking about trying to develop a gold standard SLD method, it really doesn't matter because folks are going to do whatever they want to do once they get out there and practice. And the bottom line is for all of us who've worked in a school, we all know the kids who are being referred to us. They're the lowest achievers at our school. And they're going to continue to get referred to you no matter what. And there's this constant pattern of re-referral. And you end up saying the kid doesn't qualify. And then they're back on your doorstep the next year. And then eventually what we find is a lot of practitioners just end up caving because they're in that organization and they don't want to have to continue to deal with that problem. And so that's where you end up getting this 25% from. And so what Shen raises is he suggests you're always going to get the lowest 25% of the, the kids at your school as far as achievement are going to be the ones that are going to end up being SLD. It doesn't matter. You know, for instance, if you, if you look at the, the um, RTI, RTI would suggest that I could look at and I should be able to reliably go in and predict what your SLD rate should be in your school. For instance, where I worked in Newport Beach, we had some low achieving schools where we had um, heavy ELL population, transient kids. But then on one side of our district, I, you know, I was at a, a school that, um, that had Kobe Bryant's house in it. So, I mean, we had kids picking up their kids in Maseratis and all kinds of stuff. Our, our, based on our state testing scores, there was like five kids in our entire school of like 500 that weren't advanced or proficient on state-level tests. 
So if I had that data, then I should be able to go into the school psychologist and I had these conversations with my principal and I said, hey, we should, we should be able to just go in and pick the kids that are struggling in school. We already know who the five are. But how many kids do you think I got referred to me during the year? It was still that 10 to 15% that I got at every single school. And so that's the issue that you're dealing with is it really doesn't matter as far as achievement at your school. There's this sort of sociological thing that's going on and it's, it's, there's local norms. This is the argument that Shin makes. There's local norms. So if you have a high achieving school, you have a low achieving school, it doesn't matter. The, the local norms will, will rule and you're still going to get the same kid, the amount of kids being referred to at every single school site. And so essentially the answer to that question is um, people are pretty much going to do whatever they want to capture those kids. And regardless of whatever the model is, and I know that's an overly pessimistic viewpoint of it, but I mean we've seen this play out over 30 years, and so you know that's why I'm sort of sympathetic to the argument that you know forget this whole diagnoses and you know trying to figure out which kid has a thing, which kid doesn't have a thing. Just figure out which kids are struggling at your school site and go intervene. <laughs> I can totally relate with that. I mean, oftentimes we see kids that are just struggling you know, terribly, and their teachers are just beside themselves, and their parents are just beside themselves, and, you know, if they do a test and up, they don't qualify, you know, we're using the discrepancy model, and they have a 75 IQ, and their achievement is, you know, around the 70s. You know? Well, and the other thing I'd raise, too, is when you start talking about models, and this is the point we raised in the paper that's in review right now, which is, it doesn't matter what model you utilize. When you're, when you're diagnosing a kid as SLD, you're essentially making a binary decision. You're essentially going to decide that that kid is either SLD based on what you find in your assessment results or they're not SLD. So it's one or zero. It's A or B. That's it. And so regardless of the method, um, you know, predominantly we're using measures that are on a continuous scale. So when I assess that kid, they have the freedom to vary on that IQ scale, or that cognitive measure scale, or that achievement scale. They can get any value on there. So it's a continuous scale of measurement. But because of my decision, I'm essentially going to cut that scale in half. And based on their performance on, on that measure, they're either going to have the thing or they're not going to have the thing. Well, that's what we call dichotomizing a continuous scale. And there's a phenomenon in, in research when you do that, it distorts measurement. And so what, what happens is, and why everyone is always dissatisfied with whatever model utilizes is this problem. Because you don't get, it's not a problem for the kids that are clearly SLD and clearly not SLD. It's for those kids that are kind of hovering around that cut point. And so because you dichotomize that continuous scale, you're going to get error. You're going to get false negatives. You're going to get false positives. And so it's because we don't, we're dealing with you know, things that we can't observe and we're dealing with error and measurement and we're making a binary decision about at some arbitrary point this kid's either going to qualify or not qualify and so there's going to be error especially as they get closer to that cut point we're going to miss some kids that truly have the thing regardless of what model we utilize and regardless of what model we utilize we're also going to miss some kids that, that do have the thing as well and say they don't have SLD and so what's interesting is if you read some of the arguments in the literature for people that are supporting PSW, they're raising hell about this point about RTI. They're saying, look, RTI's got a huge problem with this. And what we say in, the, in our paper is it's going to be the same thing with PSW. Every model has this problem. PSW is not going to solve this problem. So even if we adopt PSW and everyone's satisfied, 
My suspicion is 10 years from now we're going to be back at you know having this discussion about you know I wish that certain you know some kids don't qualify around this cut point or some kids do qualify and it, again it doesn't matter what model you utilize whether you're using discrepancy, RTI, PSW, it, it's going to be an issue and PSW doesn't solve that. Well, yeah, and that'll be what's interesting. It'll if PSW becomes codified in the federal regs, because the federal regs always serve as a sort of reference point for the states. States can, according to IDA regulations, at least if they stay the same, states are allowed to really do whatever they want as long as it doesn't violate the spirit of IDA. That's why you see so much different stuff out there. But um, they'll utilize the federal regs as a reference point. And like to your point, with all the different ways that you could utilized to diagnose a cognitive weakness in PSW, you know, whether that's if you use just some threshold and say a score below this point, a score below 85, a score below 70, whatever you want it to be, that's a weakness. But there's several models that are utilizing pretty elaborate statistical procedures, which is, you know, good luck with that. School psychologists couldn't even subtract and figure out what was 23 points. I don't know how they're going to utilize, you know, ipsative procedures and things like that reliably on a consistent basis. But you're likely to have folks with different um, different PSW models in different districts and so you know you get this thing where like I remember I had this case where a kid came in from Vegas came to Southern California in Vegas they were doing RTI and because they were out of state we had to reassess her even though she wasn't due for a triennial and she didn't qualify via the discrepancy procedure in California so all of a sudden she magically didn't have a learning disability anymore so I suspect you'll have those same problems if PSW gets adopted as well um, we have a question here from a viewer. Um, he would like to know, uh, based on your research, what cognitive measures have you found to have the highest correlation to the CHC factors or correlation to the most CHC factors? Um, there's been some really interesting research um, that's looked at um, and this is and this is where it becomes an issue because when you think in terms of CHC factors, I'll just give you an example: KBC2 and WJ4. Okay, they measure a lot of the same factors. They have a lot of the same labels, but how they measure those factors is very different. And the test that I always love to go back to on the KBC2 is Rover. So Rover is hypothesized to be a visual processing measure, but we all know Rover measures about a hundred different other things other than visual processing. Whereas in the WJ4. I think they do a better job of trying to follow the, the CHC model a little bit better so you're not getting as much of that construct relevant you know, uh, variance in there. But that's an issue. So, I mean, it really depends on what you're using as your CHC reference measure. The most consistent, in general, I would say, CHC variable that kind of comes out uh, on achievement is crystallizability. And, and that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody because a lot of people think crystallizability and, and, and also fluid reasoning is, is a proxy for G. So, and what I tend to find in the research is GC, crystallizability, and fluid reasoning are pretty much implicated across the board. And so, you know, I always raise the question of if, if the same two abilities are linked in almost every single achievement area, how discriminatory are they as far as making a diagnosis? And so, we know these are highly correlated with G. G is highly correlated with just about everything, and so disentangling all this stuff is a problem. Um, 
But, you know, what's interesting is when you look outside of the traditional school psych and intelligence literature, there's a lot of suggestion like that things like working memory and processing speed are implicated in a lot of different achievement areas. Working memory is interesting because if you look at your CHC model, working memory is, is problematic in the CHC model. You know, Carroll couldn't figure out where it fit in when he was originally conceptualizing the three strata model in 1993. The WJ3 really didn't measure that very well at all. And I know, uh, you know, Kevin McGrew and others um, really tried to really conceptualize working memory with WJ4 when they were revising the WJ series and trying to better fit working memory in there. And it's still kind of a mess. It's and they've termed that factor short-term memory slash working memory. Um, but again, that's you know, measurement of working memory is and where it fits in the CHC models is a, is a significant debate we're still having. You know, whether it's short-term memory, whether it's a standalone factor, so. It's a lot to digest all of this. <laughs> um, and it makes you, as far as legally defensible evaluations, too, I mean, if, if we can't all agree on what LD is defined as, and maybe we don't have measures that accurately describe what we think they're accurately, you know, measure what we think they're measuring. And, if, you know, that whole dichotomy of, of which side of things do they fall, you know, when you have a, a parent that takes a due process with an LD case, I don't think I'd want to be the school psychologist involved in that because how do you make your case one way or the other? Well, now is the issue that was raised. California, right before I left, they, they sort of revised their state regulations to try and adopt more PSW-friendly language, and they got a lot of pressure from CASP, which was their state organization, to do that. And me and some colleagues raised some significant questions that were related to your point about that, and that is that, okay, when I'm in a discrepancy model, um, and, I, and I was in a district that was very, very heavily litigious, so that was the day in and day out something I had to face. And I remember talking with one of our, our district lawyers, and he said, we love the discrepancy model. We can easily argue which kid has a thing and doesn't have a thing. 23-point difference, that's it. And, and you can take comfort in that. And he said there was a reason why he didn't want RTI to be adopted. It was because how do you argue with, how, whether a kid's making progress or not? I mean, that literally is it's, it's subjective. And, and one lawyer can make one argument, another lawyer can make another argument, and it's whatever the judge accepts. And, and that, that sort of line of thinking, I think, translates to PSW as well. Unless your state makes ironclad sort of regulatory step-by-step, step. this is what a cognitive weakness is, this is what can be asked and what can't be asked, etc. Um, I don't know how you're going to be able to have confidence if you end up going into a fair hearing knowing that you did, one, a comprehensive assessment, um, number two, and then the other is that you've identified all strengths and weaknesses and that the other person you know, can't legitimately argue that they figured out a cognitive weakness or a cognitive strength based on whatever method they want to use. So it's a huge problem and, and you know, I can see this sort of blowing up in a lot of people's faces where they end up wishing that they had the discrepancy model regardless of how flawed that is. And it's flawed, RTI has its issues and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. Speaking of questions that we may not have answers for, um, I, we have a question from a viewer who um, works in California as well, I think. Um, he, he says, he would like to know, what measures do you use or suggest for assessing African Americans in California? Because of the huge debate going on there about that right now. 
Now, for practitioners that are in California, um, California is one of the few states where we have the Larry P. versus Riles ruling, which is very, very ironclad rules as far as um, the fact that you cannot give a cognitive measure to an African-American student. Um, that's a that's a debate for a whole separate le seminar and a lecture. But um, basically, even though there's no uh, sort of legal precedent that prohibits giving a cognitive test, the California Department of Education has basically said to all school psychologists, regardless of the fact that these rulings no longer have the same sort of um, guidelines that they do now, we're still going to not allow you to give cognitive tests. Um, and, and interestingly, um, one of my colleagues actually did his dissertation on this and looked at what school psychologists were doing in California. It was all over the map assessing African Americans. Some were giving IQ tests. Some were giving parts of IQ tests because they thought if they didn't interpret the full-scale score, they somehow weren't measuring IQ. Um, so what I did was, and what I, I would advocate based on the current sort of procedural guidance from the California Department of Education, the only defensible thing I can advocate is don't give anything or any part of an IQ test. If you do that, you're going to be safe. Now, what is sort of makes it even more difficult is there have been some fair hearing decisions where folks have made the argument that they've given something like the Naglieri nonverbal ability test, which is basically a matrix reasoning measure, and because it had the word ability in it, it wasn't an IQ test, which is completely nonsensical, but they got some judge to buy it, and so therefore, it, you know, you have a ruling like that, and so school psychologists really don't have a lot of good guidance about what to do and what not to do, so that's why you see all this variance in what people are doing, but my, the, the advice I'd give is just don't give an IQ test, and you're fine. Um, I don't know how you estimate a kid's overall cognitive ability, but I figure if you give an achievement test, um, you know, you look at sort of ecological sorts of things, you can kind of get some sense of kind of what their overall level of ability is. It's amazing how much, yeah, the, the legal aspect and, and you know, drives <laughs> just about everything that we do and, and how we function. We're just so school psych legally, have to be legally aware. Yeah. I think it's a hard thing to get new practitioners to understand as well, is that you know, a lot of times they don't get very good training in, in the sort of legal. And I always say, look, you know, if you know your regulations, if you know your law that covers your practice, you know exactly what it is that you need to do to be legally defensible and never have to worry about this stuff. But what I find is the vast majority of practitioners aren't really cognizant of their regulations and don't really know. And so, you know, again, most folks aren't going to, you know, thankfully face these situations, but it's usually when they, they have to go to fair hearing, if they happen to the first time, they really realize how high the stakes are and how much they actually have to know about this stuff. Um, I've got another question just based on my brief experience here in Texas. Um, doing PSW, it's a lot more intensive than just giving a single IQ test and then giving an achievement test. Um, it takes a lot more time, and I kind of have to wonder, do school districts kind of realize that, that, yeah, I, I've done 100 evaluations, discrepancy evaluations in a single school year. If I was asked to do 100 PSW evaluations, there's no way that I could do that. I don't know uh, if there's like a recommendation of how much time it takes to do such an evaluation, but I found that it is a lot more intensive, and I have to wonder, do school districts realize that when they're staffing? And when they're, you know, looking at timelines and planning and this type of stuff, if they're making a switch to this type of model, um, I would think that 
needs to be discussion. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I, I don't think that school districts really understand what they're getting themselves into if they adopt this model. Uh, my suspicion is is that based on working in the school district is, you know, regardless of what model is adopted, you know, your assessment load is not going to change. And like you said, PSW is more intensive. And to your point, proponents of the PSW model stipulate on that. They say it's going to be more intensive. And there's no way that you can validly do, according to Brad Hale and colleagues, uh, wrote an article, I think, in 2013, published in Psychology in the Schools. And they basically, for those that are on the NASP listserv, Brad Hale says this all the time. He says, you cannot do PSW evaluations, comprehensive PSW evaluations that we're advocating, if you're assessing 50 to 100 kids a year. You can't do it. And what he says is, is that's why there needs to be at a minimum, a good sort of pre-referral RTI process, and the assumption behind that is, is that that's going to screen out the vast majority of the kids. But you know, for the the districts that have done RTI, and like I said, you know, we have a lot of research that shows it really doesn't matter what model you use, you're still going to get the same number of kids that are being referred every year. And so, what I fear is that you know, school districts are going to adopt this model, you're going to end up being subjected to way more testing. And, and you're not going to have the time that you need to do it comprehensively and sift through all this stuff. I mean, I, I think I, Brad Hale was on the listserv one time, and he said something like, if you do more than 15 to 20 of these a year, uh, it's, you're going to get burdened. So I, the most school psychologists that I know are doing way more than 15 to 20 evaluations a year. Most interns, too. <laughs> well, not, not initials, but still. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, sorry, I'm hammering. I'm the one asking the most questions, but again, I guess it's just me being in Texas. Um, previously, I was in North Carolina, and there was something in, in the legal framework there about um, the profile of you know having different strengths and weaknesses. And of all like the 20 psychs in my district, we didn't really know what that meant exactly. And so we kind of at one point had a discussion. What, what does this mean in the law that there's a, a strengths and weaknesses and stuff, and we're all like, oh, well, I guess if, you know, the VCI is different than the PRI, and there's a low base rate, you could say that they learn differently than most students, and so that looks like a learning disability, and so we would kind of qualify kids based on that. So when that wording is in the law, does that imply that they want something like specifically like a model like cross-battery, or, and when, when that was written, was that written with you know, one of those PSW models in mind, or was that kind of just written and then the PSW models followed after? Like well, this this is um, if if you want to get incredibly frustrated, just you know, this is this is the point. That, um, this is an interesting point. Um, when that language was put in the federal regs, um, it created a lot of confusion. And the, those questions that you were asking were what everybody was asking at the time in 2004 when the final regulations came out. And so then what the feds actually said is, and you can look this up in the federal commentary. So there's the regulations and then the feds publish sort of a commentary where they kind of explain their reasoning, what they mean behind all this stuff. And in their commentary, they emphatically stated that they did not in any way intend for that particular regulatory language to suggest that school psychologists should go around looking at inter-individual cognitive strengths and weaknesses. They were. They actually say this. They were focused on achievement strengths and weaknesses. Now, between you and me, the the regular the regulations are vague. 
I think that they uh, made a mistake in putting them in there and then tried to back walk that back, and it really wasn't very convincing. But you have in the federal commentary what the Fed's saying what they meant by that. And so when people were proposing PSW cognitive, uh, you know, SLD models, you know, back in 2004, 2005, they were grabbing onto those regulations and saying, look, the Fed said we could do this. And so then the Fed said, no, we didn't. And so what's been interesting to watch over the last, you know, five or six years has been PSW proponents walking back from that and saying, okay, we really can't make that argument anymore. So now they've actually found another piece of regulatory language, which is even more vague, which says that... Um, for those of you that are familiar, it says that you know states do have the option of adopting an alternative research-based procedure, and it just leaves it at that. And a lot of folks thought that to meant RTI, but since it's so open-ended, now PSW folks have been saying, "Look, we're a research-based procedure, so therefore, based on that language, you can do cognitive PSW." So that's the part when I talk about the people that are proposing PSW they want that those kinds of areas of the law clarified to specifically allow cognitive PSW in the future that would be a win for them and so we'll see what happens when they reauthorize IDEA Um, I'm pessimistic. I don't. I don't think there is a solution. I think that in the end, it doesn't really matter. You know, my, one of my colleagues, um, Kara Stick at UT San Antonio, we were having a discussion about this, and we said, you know, we we're talking about, you know, it's really just this issue of no matter what model we utilize, we're always going to be dichotomizing a continuous variable, and so kids are going to get missed. And so no one is ever going to be happy about this. I wish I had the quote when I go around giving another presentation on specific learning disability that I do, but there's a funny quote um, that I found in doing some research. Um, back when, um, for those of you that don't know where we got the discrepancy model, so when IDA, its first iteration came out in 75, um, you know, and they had, okay, they had this category of learning disability, people were beside themselves trying to figure out how to actually operationalize, how do you actually diagnose a kid with a learning disability. And so that, there was this study that came out from England, the Isle of Wight study, that suggested that, you know, there's kids that had a discrepancy, that it was kind of picking up this tail end of the distribution of kids that had reading problems, and based on that, they said, okay, well, that's one model. And so the feds basically said, look, when they came up with the original federal regulations, they operationalized a discrepancy model, but no one was really convinced that that was the best way to go about it. And so basically the Fed said, hey, we kind of agree with you. So we're going to fund a bunch of federal institutes across the country, and we're going to give you several years to come up with a better model. And so that's where you've got the University of Minnesota, University of Oregon, University of Kansas, University of Virginia. If you look in the 70s and 80s, where all the LD researchers coming from because they were getting buku bucks from the feds and they had all these learning disability institutes. And so their charge was basically, look, we are going to go um, live with the final regu regulations in 77, and you've got till 77, so you've got three years to come up with a better model. So basically, 77 comes around and everyone can't come to any consensus. And so what the Fed said is, look, as sort of a, a defense against that, they said, we're going to default to the discrepancy model if you don't come up with a better solution. And so because no one could agree on anything, they defaulted to the discrepancy model in 77, keeping in mind that nobody liked it, but there was no other alternative that everyone could agree upon. Sound familiar? I mean, here we are again 35 years later, we got the same problem. 
And so Jim Eisledyke, who was a big figure in school psychology for really the last you know, 30, 40 years, he was the um, researcher that was in charge of the, the Institute at University of Minnesota, and there was a great quote where he basically summarizes the extent of the research that he had from University of Minnesota's perspective. And he basically said, at the end of my five years of researching this for the federal government, I basically don't know what a learning disability is. Nobody knows what a learning disability is. All I know is it seems to be whatever people want it to be, depending on where they're at, who they're looking at, and which kid they're assessing. And I think we're pretty much in the same boat 40 years later. Nothing's really changed. I, do, I don't mean to suggest that learning disabilities aren't real. I, of course, think they are. I think they represent um, a biological sort of um, you know, marker that, that we can't really get at with our tests very well. Our tests are sort of tangentially referencing that, and that's part of the big problem. And sometimes our tests are accurate, sometimes they're not. And we're making important decisions about kids. So I, I don't know if we've gotten to a point with our technology that were any more reliably and validly giving this diagnosis. You know, I work in New York State and we do the RTI thing, right? And you come to a table, you're at a CSC meeting, you've done your evaluation, you've got the staff from the school, and you know, I don't work in that school in the example I'm thinking of, and they don't have any data. You know, they're giving this kid extra AAS help and all this extra reading support and there's no data. So like in your heart, you know, like you know it when you see it. This kid has a learning disability, this kid needs help, but there's no data. So it's just it's just frustrating in every sort of way you're looking at a kid, there can be frustrations and there can be flaws. Well, and this is where I think a lot of people don't understand what, what again, RTI has been sort of, um, it, it's been, um, depending on who you talk to, it's been, it's been kind of made to be something it was never intended to be. You know, for instance, Mark Shen, I mean, he was one of the sort of godfathers of RTI, and he's sort of walked away from that over the last five years and said, you know, what it has become is not what we ever intended it to be. So when you go back and you look at what RTI, and there was a sort of seductive appeal of that model, was very much to your point. Because we've got this problem of figuring out which kids have the thing and which ones don't, and it's always a subjective decision, and those, when you make a subjective decision like that because of all the things I've talked about today, some kids are going to get missed. Some, at some point, we just have to say, look, I don't know if we're ever going to be able to do this to where we can, we can reliably diagnose the kids with this construct. So a lot, that's where RTI really came from and said, you know, and where the sort of non-categorical model from Iowa really has a lot of appeal where it says, so quit trying to do that and just figure out which kids have problems and go help them. Mm -hmm. And so one of the reasons why we're, we're stuck in this bind is, is we can't give kids help unless we give them this label. And, and that's, you know, that gets to a whole other issue, which is, where are the interventions in schools? And the schools that I've worked at, and I think I probably share, you know, experiences like with a lot of other people, special ed's the only intervention game in town. Whether it's actually effective or not, that's a whole other debate, but it's the only game in town. And so that's why, you know, special ed has served for the last 30 years in every school to sort of, you know, give me your tired, your hungry, and your poor. Because teachers are beside themselves, they don't know what else to do, and they don't have any additional resources. So that's another area where, you know, regardless of what model we utilize, if we don't fix that issue, which is we've got a lot of kids that are being referred to special education that don't legitimately have a disability, but they're struggling at school. And what do you do with those kids? Because that's, I think, the bind that school psychologists find themselves in, is you're at the table, and you've got to say this kid doesn't qualify, knowing 
that means they're not going to get any interventions and they have to go back and just essentially struggle. And I think that's where we get this problem of, you know, you have school psychologists that say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give the kid the label regardless of what the data says. And so then when you have this sort of audit research that's done, we find that so many kids don't meet criteria. And so that's where Shin says, people are going to do that. There's nothing you can do to stop that. So get rid of this model where we have to give kids a label and you won't have to worry about that problem. Ryan, I have one question for you. I don't know if you can answer this, but the, the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity recently sent out on their social media a call for action because they say that the, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act is now being finalized without the mention of dyslexia. I'm wondering, do you know what that's about and, and what in if it's being finalized without the mention of dyslexia, isn't dyslexia still, aren't those kids still protected under IDEA? And uh, do you know anything about what's going on with the, those laws? Um, my only suspicion is in the federal regulations, there's separate sort of what? regulatory language that references dyslexia specifically. It doesn't talk about it as an eligibility area. It just sort of says, look, it's, it's, it means that dyslexia are kids that have reading disabilities. However, when you look at the SLD language, it says reading disability. Um, some states have clarified, um, for instance, California did, this, they put clarifying regulations in their, in their criteria that say that dyslexia and reading disability are the same thing. Um, but you've got people out there that think dyslexia and a reading disability are separate things, which is ridiculous. They're the exact same thing. They're just two separate terms that mean the same thing. So what I suspect is, is that um, the feds are trying to get rid of any mention of dyslexia so they get rid of this confusion that people think that they're two separate constructs um, and, and that doesn't sit well with some people um, but that, that's the only thing I can reference. Um, I, I don't really think it matters. Reading disability and dyslexia are the same thing. But what's interesting is what we haven't even talked about is you have this whole thing with 504 and 504 is a whole separate animal. And so there's an intersection between 504 and IDEA. So, for instance, kid, you know, if you're if you're diagnosed as eligible, if you have an SLD via IDEA, you're still covered by 504. But then you could have kids that don't meet IDEA criteria that are eligible for accommodations through a 504 accommodation plan. And so this is where it could get potentially problematic because DSM utilizes dyslexia, and so a kid could have that diagnosis, which the bar for dyslexia in the DSM, uh, the new DSM is incredibly low. I suspect it's going to be lower than any district's criteria across the country. So you could have kids that walk in and say, my local clinical psychologist diagnosed with me with dyslexia via the DSM, and I'm eligible for 504 accommodations. And there's really nothing a school district's going to be able to do because the, the language and who's eligible versus not eligible via 504 is so ambiguous. And, and so you could have a, a, I'm waiting until you, you know, in, in some areas it's already happening, where you have a rash of parents who say, I don't want an IDA evaluation, I want a 504 evaluation because the bar is so low to qualify there. And guess what? A school district, and there's been, um, the feds have been clear on this, if you're eligible via 504, you are eligible for whatever is available at that school site. That can mean putting a kid in a special education classroom under a 504 accommodation plan. If it's at the school site, the kid can get it. And so the, before I left in Newport Beach, there were some parents that were saying, look, 
the bar to qualify under 504 for disability is incredibly lower. Let's just go there, and then we can request whatever we want. And the school district can't say no. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. it's a Pandora's box. So. Oh okay, we're running out of time. Um, any final comments or questions, ladies and gentlemen? Rebecca, did you post that there was maybe a comment? There was a comment, um, uh, just a, a reiteration of what you said, that special education is not an intervention. We need to have great intervention um, in, in and outside of special education. I agree. Well, you know, I, this is where I kind of step back and say special education can be an intervention. Um, the places where I've worked, I haven't seen it used very well. And, and I think that's, you know, you just really have to step back and, and look at, you know, are folks actually doing evidence-based practices in their special education classrooms? This has been a problem for 50 years. And so I think the problem that the commenter is sort of hitting on, which is the reality is, is that oftentimes we think just by qualifying a kid that they're automatically going to get this help and, and get better. And that's just the beginning. You know, once they get into special education, and Mark Shin raises this point all the time, it's like for, for um, those of you out there doing RTI, it's like we do all this RTI pre-referral, then we send them to special education. It's like progress monitoring and all that stuff goes out the window, you know, just because now that they're in special education. So um, it's a huge problem. But yeah, they need to be uh, general education interventions and resources, but those are cost-intensive and districts are strapped for cash, so. Yeah. Last-minute comments in here, right? Yeah, I love the participation. Is is dyslexia um, not in the DSM five? I don't have my DSM five. I, I, I would have to. Right. I think they might have actually gotten rid of it. The the commenter may be right. So yeah. But again, that when you see that, there's just really there's a lot of people who think dyslexia and reading disability, ironically enough, are two separate things, and they're not. They're just different terms for the same construct. And, and thank you for saying that. I mean, when I was in North Carolina, that's what I told parents all the time that. I, because they would come to me and say, oh, we want to have him tested for dyslexia, but, you know, this teacher told us that, oh, no, we don't, the school doesn't test for dyslexia. And I would have to say, well, yeah, kind of we do, because it's essentially the same thing. But then I moved to Texas, and Texas has its own kind of definition for dyslexia, and they do dyslexia evaluations that are separate from LD evaluations. And that kind of blew my mind. I was like, whoa, and I, I really can't even wrap my head around how a kid qualifies dyslexic in Texas versus LD in Texas. Well, yeah, I just had a conversation with a colleague because I was trying to figure that out as well. Um, it, Texas is a whole, like I said, Texas is a wild west. I don't understand what we're doing here. But what I was told was is that Texas has basically a, a, a general education intervention funding network for this, these dyslexia programs that are outside of special education. And to qualify under there, it's kind of vague, but it doesn't mean that the kid has a reading disability. It just means that they, when they say they're eligible for the dyslexia program, they've met criteria for that intervention system. Yeah. And, and so, but again, because you're using those terms, like I was, I remember a, 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 one of our students came in with a report and said, you know, this kid has been labeled dyslexic and they're in the dyslexia program, but then they were doing their evaluation. They ended up saying the kid's not eligible for um, SLD, for special education. I was like, what? This makes no sense. You just said the kid's dyslexic. But um, that's, someone was clarifying with me that, that Texas just has this whole separate thing. Okay, Rebecca, you, you have two more comments you just I, said. Yes, right? I have two more questions uh, for you, Dr. McGill. Um, 
Let's see. Uh, regarding providing services in light of vacant criteria for identification, this begs the question, is the basis for this process simply allocation of resources? If so, then we need to continue to refine the process so students aren't falling through the cracks. What do you think? Is it is it just allocation of resources? Uh, well, yeah, I would say I think it, I think it gets it gets more than that. I mean, there you know you've got for instance there were some school districts that really did try to make a legitimate attempt to adopt pre or full RTI, and they bought all of these evidence based programs, and they spent a lot of money doing that. And again, this this was where you know there is some credence to trying to understand you know, how kids are, are presenting as far as cognitive, some cognitive deficits, things like that. So, for instance, if you just utilize as your tier one sort of um, um, standard protocol, every kid gets the same canned intervention package that's phonics, that's based on teaching the kid phonics, and the kid ends up having, um, you know, more of a surface dyslexia where they have issues with orthographic processing or rapid autobiased naming, that kid's not going to respond to that intervention. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they should qualify, you know, truly under an RTI as an SLD. Maybe you didn't get the right intervention. And so again, this gets into an issue of, you know, even if you try to, in, the, in schools, do dedicate actual resources, you have to kind of know what you're doing. And there is no one-size-fits-all model. Um, and it just makes it incredibly difficult. I mean, ideally, if you think about it, right, with all we know about you know, disabilities and things that kids struggle with with school, if you're going to do good pre-referral stuff. You're going to have to have a math intervention package, a writing intervention package. You're going to have to have a behavioral intervention package. You're going to have to get, um, um, you know, multiple reading interventions. And and schools, you know, I have not been in a school where they can actually envision this stuff out. So, um, I see a comment out. Where I see learning disability determination in 20 years. Yeah. I think we're going to be continuing to have these debates in 20 years. Thank you to everyone out there who has been participating and engaging, even the school psychologist from New York State, sending my love. Um, <laughs> thank you, Dr. McGill, for coming on and providing lots of thought-provoking discussion and information, and we really appreciate it. Thank you, and um, we'll be back in May for our next episode of School Psych Podcast. Thanks so much, everyone. Good night. Good night.